You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, you know, manipulating God is an art as old as history itself. In so many world religions, people have sought to bend the divine will to serve their own needs. So they burn more joysticks at the temple so that the gods will answer their prayers. They construct an altar in their home to ward off evil spirits. And they offer more food, generally oranges, at that very altar to be healed from sickness. You see, we think that if we follow a spiritual formula or mechanism, we can somehow position ourselves to receive God's favour. And we Christians fall into the same trap sometimes, don't we? You know, I once met a pastor who said to me, Adam, you know, the more times you say the name Jesus in that way, the more clearly God will hear your prayers. So you can imagine exactly what his prayers sounded like. Every second word, Jesus, as if the word itself somehow gave his prayer more power. Uh, At another nearby church, my friend who's the pastor came one Sunday and found one of his newer church members cleaning the building. He was a bit puzzled and he asked her why. And she said, I have an exam coming up soon. And my friend wondered to himself, does this young lady think that cleaning this building somehow increases God's blessings over her studies? You see, friends, Christian superstition is more widespread than we might think. Instead of submitting our wills to God's power, we seek to bend his power to our will. And when we seek to manipulate God, we're actually standing over him. We're actually seeking not just to use him, but actually rule him. We are lifting up ourselves over the throne of God. And for those of us who know Hannah's song, we know that that will not end well. Because God is the sovereign and powerful king. He will not be used and he will not be ruled. His sovereignty and power are so incomparable that if we try to use him or rule him, can I tell you, friends, we will fail. In fact, this passage shows us over three separate scenes, three separate defeats, as it were, that any attempt to use God or rule God, it's not just pointless, it's laughable. It's an absolute joke. If we lift ourselves up over God, can I guarantee you, God will bring us down in defeat. Well, let's look firstly at verses uh, 1 to 11. Uh, Last week, didn't we, we breathed a sigh of relief. The, The drought broke and God's word flooded Israel. Finally, God brought down the corrupt priesthood of Eli and he raised up a faithful priest and truthful prophet in Samuel. And just like he reversed Hannah's fortunes by bringing life to a barren womb, God reversed Israel's fortunes by bringing his word to a silent nation. But still, something is rotten in the state of Israel. In verse 1, we find them lining up for battle against the Philistines. 
Let me tell you about the Philistines for just a moment. You see, the Philistines are a group of sea peoples who first surface around the 12th century BC. They, they settle along the coast of Canaan across five cities all to the south of Israel. Fast forward however many centuries by Samuel's day, they're still a small nation, but they've become technologically advanced, militarily powerful and politically aggressive. And they want to extend their power to the north. That's right. They want to extend their power into Israelite territory. So here we are, verse 1, Israel is camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines are camped at Aphek. It's like they're in two corners of the boxing ring. Suddenly the bell sounds and then bam, the Philistines deal a knockout blow. And it's almost shocking how fast it happens. Within just two verses, Israel suffers a one-hit KO and 4,000 of its soldiers die on the battlefield. The remaining troops, they limp back to Ebenezer and the elders of Israel, they're shocked. Look at what they ask. Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Notice, not why did the Philistines defeat us, but why did the Lord defeat us? This may be the only true thing they say here in this entire passage. You see, the elders rightly recognize that God is sovereign. The battle belongs to the Lord, be it in victory or in defeat. Now, let me ask, at this point, what do you think the elders should do? What do you think the elders should do? I mean, the elders recognize that God is sovereign, that they know that the battle belongs to him, but he just led them straight into defeat. Wouldn't you think now of all times would be a pretty good time for the elders to turn to the Lord, to turn to his word, to seek his prophet? And yet, right throughout this passage, Samuel is nowhere to be found. Instead, they think to themselves, no, 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 we've got a better plan. Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. Now, if you know what the Ark of the Covenant is, at face value, that sounds like a pretty good plan, doesn't it? Right? Let me give you a bit of background. Right, The Ark is this large gold-plated wooden chest that's carried on two poles. On the inside of the Ark is kept the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments are written. And on the top of the ark are two cherubim, or angels, stretching out their wings and surrounding the mercy seat. And this seat is the throne of God, from which he dispenses mercy, grace, and forgiveness to his people. Its full title is The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies. And it represents God's throne, God's glory, God's word, God's presence, God's power. And in times past, Israel would carry that ark into battle. And whenever they would follow that ark into battle, Moses would cry out these words. Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered and those who hate you flee from your presence. Can you see what they were doing? Many battles ago, carrying this ark into battle is like God as your warrior king, riding with his people onto the battlefield and winning the war for them. So, this sounds like a pretty good plan, doesn't it? 
The, the elders look back to their uh, battles of the past. They look back on those past victories and they think, let's do it again. Bring out the ark. But this plan is not as noble as it seems. Notice, look carefully in verse 3. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. You see, friends, there's, there's almost this slight hint that the elders might just think that what will save them is not their God, but the ark. And then in verse 4, we tragically discover who might be, if not behind this plan, at least complicit with it. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Friends, this is not a good sign. Israel is following the ark and submitting to God's power. Well, they should be, but that's not what they're doing. Instead, they're using the ark and manipulating God's power. They're seeking to bend its power to their own will. They're treating the ark like a secret weapon, a bit like the elder wand in Harry Potter. And, and their plan is to bring the ark. That plan is really no different, to, for those of you who watch Avengers, to Thor traveling to Nidavellir in search of Stormbreaker, the greatest weapon in Asgard. No, this plan no, is pagan superstition, plain and simple. But when the Philistines hear the shout of confidence from Israel, what do they do? They panic. Verse 8, woe to us. Who will rescue us from the hand of these magnificent gods? Now, we can quibble that they get some of the details wrong. They confuse the one god with many gods and they conflate what happened in the wilderness with what happened in Egypt. But they look back to the plagues of Egypt and they tremble. But the Philistines choose to plow on. They push on. They fight. And guess what? They win. And it's a total slaughterhouse. 30,000 soldiers dead. That's seven and a half times more than before. The rest of the soldiers, they just desert the army. The ark of God is captured. And just as God said, Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. Hannah warned us, do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. But friends, can you see that is exactly what the elders of Israel have done. In their plan, they have lifted up themselves over God and they quite literally have used his throne and manipulated his power for their own purposes. But this book is showing us that God is a sovereign and powerful king. He will not be used. But it looks like he's been defeated, hasn't it? I mean, the ark has been captured, and that means God has been captured, doesn't it? At least that's the report brought back by the man in verse 12. Just look at him. His clothes are torn, and there's dirt on his head. And friends, this is a sign that this man is stricken by grief. He runs back, and he finds Eli. Eli now is 98 years old and totally blind. And yet he is sitting on his chair beside the road, almost metaphorically looking out to see what has happened. The man delivers Eli a report that, can I say, just gets worse and worse and worse. Notice how much worse it gets. Israel has fled from the Philistines. 
And also, there was a great slaughter among the people. By the way, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. Oh, and the ark of God has been captured. And when Eli hears the news about the ark, he falls back. He breaks his neck and he dies. Thus, God's judgment against the house of Eli was fulfilled. Notice, though, that for Eli, the worst news is not the death of his sons. And in verse 13, he's anxious not for his two boys, but for the ark of his God. You see, for all of his foibles and weaknesses, Eli demonstrates some measure of repentance as finally, finally, he honors God more than his own sons. But Eli's life really is the story of too little, too late, isn't it? And he meets a tragic end. But Eli is not the only person who reacts to the seeming apparent defeat of God. Look at his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas. She is pregnant and about to give birth. And even though the birth of her son should be a moment of great joy, when she hears of the death of her husband and the defeat of her God, she can feel nothing but overwhelming sorrow. So she names her son Ichabod, or Ikavod, which means where is glory? And our answer is in verse 22. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Can you see her cry of lament? God has left the building. Surely this must be the lowest point in Israel's history to date. God has been captured. And if God has been captured, his presence, his power, his word, his blessing have all been stripped away. This is the ultimate defeat of God. Or so it seems. You see, friends, this woman, she is only half right. She assumes that God has left Israel because the ark has been captured, that his glory is somehow attached to this object, but God does not live in shrines made by human hands. And even the highest heaven cannot contain him. You see, God cannot be bound by an ark. It's not that the ark leads God out of Israel. No, God leads the ark out of Israel. God doesn't follow the ark out of Israel, somehow chained to it. No, the ark follows God into exile. God is not the victim here. No, just like Hannah sung, he is the judge. He is not defeated by the Philistines, though he's deserting the Israelites. He's judging them for their corrupt religion, their rejection of his word, and their attempt to manipulate his power. You see, when this woman despairs, the glory has departed from Israel. God is judging his people by withdrawing his presence. There is no greater judgment than the silence of God. And there is no greater judgment than the absence of God. That's why the Apostle Paul describes God's final judgment as eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. And you know what's really tragic? is that so many people in our world, they want to live a life without God. 
A life without God, assuming that a life without God, out of his presence, is a life of true freedom. But friends, a life without God is a life under judgment. And an eternity without God is an eternity under judgment. No, friends, can you see what is happening here? What looks like on the outside to be the defeat of God is actually the desertion of Israel. God is the sovereign and powerful king. He will not be defeated. Israel's elders and Eli's daughter-in-law show us the foolishness of pagan superstition. The belief that somehow God is bound to an ark or bound to particular objects or practices, that his power can somehow be bent to our will. And Christian superstition abounds in our world today. We light candles before we pray, thinking that God will more clearly hear our prayers. We hang crosses on our walls, thinking that God will be more present in our households. We we take communion by ourselves at home, thinking that God will somehow more powerfully protect us from sickness and death. Some of us even treat our Bible superstitiously, thinking that the power is in the pages and the ink, not in the words and their meaning. And still others of us treat prayer superstitiously, thinking that the power is in our practice rather than in the God who hears our prayers. So we say things like this, or maybe we think them. Maybe. Maybe if I wake up at dawn, and pray in a particular place and posture, then God will hear me. Or, maybe, if I go on a prayer walk around my neighborhood and claim it for the Lord Jesus, then God will bless my suburb. Or, maybe, if I organize a 24-7 prayer roster, where at least there's one person somewhere in the world praying at all hours of the day, then surely God must hear us. Brother, sister, God is not deaf. He is not hard of hearing. And these practices sometimes are far more akin to pagan superstition. Now, it's not wrong for us to pray. Please, wake up at dawn and pray. Go on a walk around your neighborhood and pray. Pray at all times of the day, but do not believe that somehow our mechanism or our practice can control or bend the will of our God. It's actually quite laughable at the extents to which we go to try and manipulate the Lord. But friends, it will only ever end in our defeat. God has spoken his word and he delights to answer our prayers. So don't twist his arm or stand over his power. No, turn to his word and submit to his will. God is the sovereign and powerful king. He will not be used and he will not be defeated. But let me show you who will be. You see, in chapter 5, we see the defeat of Dagon, the the so-called God of the Philistines. And I want you to just picture everything that happens in this chapter. It's absolutely masterful. Israel has been defeated. The ark of their God is captured and the Philistines, well, you can imagine how they're feeling. They're rejoicing at their victory over Israel. So they bring the Ark of Yahweh to Ashdod and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. 
They're treating the ark a bit like a trophy that they're putting on the mantelpiece, showing off yet another victory, another scalp claimed for their God. And on the outside, it looks like Yahweh is a defeated and humiliated prisoner in the house of his captor. The next morning, the people of Ashdod wake up and they enter the temple of their so-called God and, oh my gosh, there is Dagon, fallen with his face on the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. And it looks like he's worshipping him. So you can, the people are panic, right? You can almost imagine them asking each other, hey, who did this? Who did this, right? And, and they're wondering, they look around, they can't see anyone there, and then suddenly... They slowly look up at the ark. But it's just a wooden box sitting there. And they think to themselves, surely it can't be, can it? Surely it can't be. There's no way, is there? So, so quickly they rush over to their so-called God. They carefully lift him up off the ground. They gently place him back on the shelf. And maybe just to be safe, I mean, they nail him into the wood. You wouldn't want him to have another accident, would you? Well, the next morning comes and the people of Ashdod wake up again. And they enter the temple like, like is their custom and, oh dear. Oh no, again, there is Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. But this time, can I say it's a lot worse. His head and his hands have been chopped off. And all you have lying on the ground is a Mr. Potato Head without the parts. And we're supposed to, it's pretty funny stuff, isn't it? The ark is quite literally a wooden box that's just sitting there. There's no army, there's no soldiers, there's no nation. But Yahweh single-handedly destroys this false god. And he shows us just how foolish and fragile an idol really is. That the prophet Isaiah mocks idols as false gods that we need to carry. But friends, Yahweh is the true God who carries us. Idols are false, foolish, and fragile gods that fail. We bow down to our careers that can be lost in an instant. We worship financial security, but we're so insecure, checking our bank balance every five minutes each day. And we idolize our children, putting all our hopes onto our kids, only for them to grow up and to leave us. You see, the idea that any idol can compare with our God is an absolute joke. Don't even try it. I always wonder, I I suspect Hannah was probably laughing when she sung, there's no one holy like our God. There's no one besides you and there's no rock like our God. As if it's ridiculous that anyone could even presume to compare themselves to him. Hannah prays the God of reversals. And what greater reversal is there than Yahweh's defeat of Dagon? There is Dagon lying on the floor without a head and without any hands. And now God's hand comes on Ashdod. He strikes them with tumors like the plagues he sent on the Egyptians in Exodus. And you can imagine... Now, the crisis in the temple has just spilled out to the whole nation. The Philistines are freaking out. You can imagine one of the people from Ashdod has probably screamed, they've got a bomb, go, 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 right? They pick up the ark, and what do they do? They handball it to their friends in Gath. And with friends like that, who needs enemies? 
So the ark goes to Gath, but then God's hand comes down on them as well. So what do they do? They handball it again onto Ekron, and the Ekronites freak out. They've moved the ark of Israel's God to us, to kill us and our people. And what we see in these verses in chapter 5 is almost like the Philistines playing a deadly game of pass the parcel, never quite sure when it's going to blow. Friends, can you see God's sovereignty and power at work? The trick is, it's all in that one word, hand, which is another way of describing God's power. In chapter 4, verse 8, the Philistines ask the question, who can save us from the hand of these magnificent gods? In chapter 5, verse 4, Yahweh cuts off the hands of Dagon. And in chapter four, uh, chapter 5, four times God's hand comes against the Philistines. You see, God doesn't need a soldier. He doesn't need an army and he doesn't need a nation. No, God's own hand, God's own power are all he ever needs. If you were an Israelite and you saw the ark of God leaving your people, you would think to yourself, God is dead. But what looks like God's defeat is actually the means by which he achieves his victory. You see, in one sense, Yahweh allows himself to be captured. He goes behind enemy lines and he single-handedly destroys the Philistine God. God is the sovereign and powerful king who is victorious through defeat. And it sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Because when Jesus died, it looked like God had been decisively defeated. But what looked like God's defeat was actually the means by which he achieved victory for the world. You see, Jesus embraced death as our greatest enemy. He went behind enemy lines into the grave, as it were. And he single-handedly destroyed the power of death. In Colossians 2, we read that in his death on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Isn't that what Yahweh did to Dagon? He disgraced him publicly. And the Lord Jesus triumphed over the forces of darkness and evil. And he did it all by himself. Friends, he didn't need our help then. And he doesn't need our help now. No, the Lord Jesus has won our salvation from beginning to end. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that there is nothing you can do to contribute to everything that God has already done to save you. God has done it all. Just like we sung before, Jesus paid it all. All you have to do now is submit to his power. Receive his victory. Enjoy his salvation and trust that the Lord Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. God is the sovereign and powerful king who saves his people. In the 1730s, a movement called the Evangelical Revival swept across North America and Europe, and it saw thousands of people turn to the Lord in salvation. This was the greatest spiritual awakening of its time in living memory, and it was sparked 
through ordinary people committing themselves to the ordinary work of prayer and preaching. That's all they did. They prayed and they preached the word of God. And this evangelical revival swept across two continents. That was in the 1730s, in what we call the evangelical revival, or the first great awakening. Fast forward 60 to 70 years, and we're now in the 1800s, and there is a man named Charles Finney. And this man, he he looked back at the first great revival, and he thought, wouldn't it be great to replicate that power today? Well, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Finney was just like the elders of Israel who looked back on their conquest in Joshua with the ark that led the way and they wanted that power again. But just like the elders, Finney did not turn to the Lord or his word. Instead, what he did was he devised a plan. And his plan was to manufacture, or in his word, induce conversions. He thought, I can bring it about. I can bring about the mass conversion of the many through new extraordinary means. And so was born the altar call. And he replaced clear gospel preaching with emotional revival meetings. Moments, meetings, so high pressured that it would in many ways emotionally induce someone to make a commitment to the Lord. Friends, Finney was no different to the elders of Israel. In two ways. Firstly, he did not submit to God's word, but he sought to control God's power. Instead of trusting God's word to save, he created Christian superstition, as it were, to engineer false conversions. And what was shown in years to come that many of the so-called conversions that took place in the Second Great Awakening did not last the distance. Friends, God is a sovereign and powerful king. He will not be used. And secondly, Finney did not believe in the extent of God's sovereignty and power. Instead of trusting God's power to save, what did he do? He acted as if God... Now, this is the laughable part, right? He acted as if God somehow needed our help. That without an altar call or an emotionally charged experience, God was somehow impotent and unable and powerless to save his people. But friends, God is the sovereign and powerful king. He will not be defeated. God didn't need him And God doesn't need us. He is more than capable of doing it all himself. And brothers and sisters, he has done it all in the Lord Jesus. I know. Sometimes we look out at our world and our church and we see all the desperate needs that are out there. And in an honest moment, we might just think to ourselves, yeah, God needs me. I mean, what would he do without me? Look at all that I do for him. I could never leave this ministry. I can't stop helping that person. But, Adam, if I don't do it, who will? Well, I suspect that God has done a pretty good job for all of human history. 
I suspect that he might be able to do far more without you. And yet he pleases to involve us. You know, every time we think that God somehow needs us, we betray a fundamental distrust in his sovereign power. But God is the sovereign and powerful king. He will not be used and he will not be defeated. Do not think that he needs us to fight for him. No, friends, the truth is we need him to fight for us. And in Jesus, he has. Through the death and resurrection of his son, God has defeated the devil. He has destroyed the power of death and he has dispelled the forces of darkness. He has done absolutely everything necessary from beginning to middle to end to save his people. So don't try to control his power. Don't try to force his will. No, friends, we are something far better before us. Joyfully submit to his sovereign care and gratefully receive the victory of his son. Will you do that? Will you do that? Well, why don't we pray? Sovereign God, mighty King, Lord of Lords, we praise you for your sovereign power, your steadfast love, and your unending grace. How amazing is it to think that a God with such great power would use it in love for his people. And yet in the Lord Jesus, that's exactly what you've done. God, humble us. We repent of those times that we have sought to exercise or bend your power to our will. We repent of those times, God, that we somehow think that you are not mighty to save. No, God, we know that in the Lord Jesus, you have fought for us from beginning to middle to end. And for that, we give you great thanks and praise. All in Jesus' strong name we pray.